didn't have the thing up here, so I, I didn't know where we were. Um, so we started looking at a few months ago now, right? Um, about the anatomy of the church, not original to me. I'm kind of just following an outline that I found in um, Dr. John MacArthur's book, um, A Master's Plan for the Church. So as a new church plant, what exactly do we need to look at? We need to know the master's plan for the church. Like if we knew the master's plan for the church, then we can plant the church that would honor the master and the Lord, right? Um, so I, I just kind of was looking at that, and he had that language of the anatomy of the church as split in five ways, um, which was the, the skeleton of the church, um, which had the um, internal systems of the church. He had the different functions, which is the muscles and then the flesh. So those, those four ways, I think, is how, how he divided it. And we looked at the first, the skeletal structure of the church, which is the non-negotiable truths about the church. Um, and we discussed them, and we remember we were, we were going back over over them every time we reminded ourselves of those. Um, this time I even have them in a handout format, so we don't have to, to worry about it. Um, but these are the, the, the truths that would mark our church. Like when people think about the Remnant Bible Church, like these are the non-negotiables. Don't go to Remnant if you think these things are negotiable, which is a high view of God. God will be the primary focus of our life and our worship. Not man, not culture, not fame, not like numbers. None of that would be the primary focus as a church for and as individuals for our life of worship. We will have a high view of God. He talks about, we talked about how absolute authority of Scripture. I mean, not just authority of Scripture. We're affirming this is a non-negotiable. The absolute authority, like that's it, is Scripture. What we believe and how we live would be in submission to no other final authority but the Scriptures. That's who would guide us. That's what would guide us. That's, who, that's what we'd refer to in any aspect. Not my words, not... Whoever has the most charismatic presentation, not our feelings, none of that. It's the absolute authority of Scripture. That's a non-negotiable. We, talk, we talked about how we get to that is by teaching sound doctrine and how we will strive to teach what the Bible teaches without compromise. We understand that none of us are inerrant and none of us are infallible, but our goal and our pursuit is to strive to teach what the Bible teaches without compromise, even if it's hard for us to swallow. Right? Like grimacing and cringing, we will teach what the Bible teaches and we will take that down. Because ultimately that is the absolute authority. And we will take seriously also non-negotiable about personal holiness. We won't just be theoretically committed to these things that we talked about, the high view of God, the absolute authority of Scripture, and sound doctrine, but like personally, in the way that we live our lives, the way that we shop, and the way that we like raise our children, and the way that we, are, we handle our marriage, we will pursue that again. We understand that we live in a fallen world, and, and we have sin, but personal holiness would be our pursuit in a real way, practical lives, in our thoughts, and our motivations, and our speech, and our actions, we would pursue to align those things and make them consistent to the teaching of Scripture. And then we talked about spiritual authority being one of those areas that we'll be committed to, to be held accountable by the biblical authority that is designated to the local church. 
that would mark us as a church. These, these are the skeletal structures. This is the framework in which our church should exist. And we had gone in depth with that and looked at scriptural references for that. Um, but just this is just for revision's sake. Um, but this framework we also t- started talking about after we talked about the framework it would only be valuable. It would only be tangible. It would only make some kind of real change in our lives and it would be known to the world and it would bring honor to Christ. As we cultivate certain um, internal systems, which are those spiritual attitudes that we started looking at, right? Unless those spiritual attitudes, unless those those internal systems are operating within that framework, then all we see is just just a framework, just a skeleton. Like you can tell it's there, but there's no life being brought forth from it. So that's why we started looking at it, and then we even said, <laughs> if we wanted to use a, a, a jargon language from our day or like the, the, the word for the day in our, in our culture, this can be even considered our core values, right? And we talked about the, those 10 spiritual attitudes. I spared you like five or six of them um, that are in the book, but they kind of just work hand in hand. Not that, not that those are not important, but they, um, these were the ones that actually thought, I thought were um, essential. For our, for our church, the first one being obedience, that unwavering desire, that spiritual attitude. Again, this is spiritual attitudes, by the way. These are not like perfect images. We're not striving to be the perfect images of obedience. There's only been one person ever to ever be perfectly obedient, and that's Jesus Christ. But this is our pursuit. This is our unwavering desire to submit to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God. That's what obedience is. We looked at that in detail. We took one week, um, one session to look at that. We took another session to look at humility. And we had a really fruitful conversation, right? Which came to be, okay, what is humility? Like, how do you actually take biblical humility without devaluing yourself? That was a conversation we had. Um, when we talked about humility. And what I tell you, this book right here had taught me a lot about humility and put a real perspective. I mean, in every aspect of has been really helpful, and besides the Bible, obviously. But the way that he presents it, I think it's the way that we should be thinking about humility as well. Um, it's to use true biblical humility is using your infinite value in Christ. Because we do have value. And humility is not like devaluing yourself and debasing yourself and saying, oh, I'm nothing. Yeah, you're nothing, but in Christ, you're something. Right? So it's not saying, oh, I'm not gifted. I don't have this gift of like playing a guitar or singing or teaching or leading people in, in discipleship. It's not saying I don't own these things. It's actually using those, that infinite value in Christ for others and not your own. Like saying, I have this gift, but I'm not going to just like make it a platform from which I would cause people to look at myself and propagate myself or pursue my selfish desires from that. It's actually saying, yeah, I have this, but I only have it in Christ and I, and then I'm just going to give it away. That kind of attitude. Does that make sense? Like, especially, does that make it real to you, for you guys? Like, how do we humbly exist as a church? It's knowing that my brother Dole has a value. And it's not because he just says, I don't have any value in me, that he's humble. It's like, no, I have this, but guess what? I will serve you with this gift that I have. And I, I recognize that in him. And I would say, oh, yeah, sure, I have this gift, and I will serve you in this way. Which leads us to love. That's the last thing we looked at. 
Love was the other spiritual attitude that we looked at. And we looked at it from a perspective of love being an action, actively meeting the needs of others from a heartfelt affection that God pours into us. And that is the summary of everything that we talked about. <laughs> right? Love is the, like, as a church, we are to meet the needs of others. That's how love presents itself. Or, but that doesn't come, I think it was Basu that asked that question, but what if I don't have that deep emotional affection for them, but do I still meet it? The, the goal is for us to be people that would pursue that, that not only meeting, not just the action of love, but also having that heartfelt affection. Like the reason that I'm meeting the needs of my brothers because, you know, I have this, this emotional affinity towards the, my brother and my sister. Like we want to cultivate that culture, and that's the culture that we want to establish our church with. And the result of that is not something that we do. It's because God loves us. How deep the Father's love for us. That's what is poured in us. Paul tells us in Romans 5, right? The love of God has been poured out in us by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, my favorite, remember I was telling you, Romans 5. People wrote their names, I won't say anybody, I won't, but more power to you. People had their names written in this custom suit, I just wrote Romans 5. I never want to forget that, I want to keep it close to my heart. Actually, yeah, that's, that's what it says, Romans 5. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's just my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Like, you can leave me with that everywhere. And I, I saw that we were going to read Romans 5 today, and I was just like, easy, I know what suit I'm going to wear. <laughs> but that's, that's what it is. As God pours his love into us, we have this heartfelt affection. So when I look at Basu, I'm looking at Basu with a heartfelt affection towards him. When I look at Jordi, that's, that's the same thing that I would feel. And then from that place, then I can now meet their need without feeling like, oh, I got to check this one thing off. You know, oh, man, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I have to do this because God commands it. Because that becomes what? Like that becomes tireless. I mean, tiresome, not tireless. <laughs> it becomes cumbersome even. And then we, we make the love of God be something that what it's not. And that's not how we want to plant our church. But we want to have this, we want to cultivate this attitude about us, spiritual attitude, which leads us to the fourth one is unity. That's what we'll be talking about. But you see um, service there or a desire to serve is the fifth one, self-discipline, accountability, dependence, desire for growth faithfulness. So we'll, these will be the things that we will be discussing in the coming weeks. Um, these spiritual attitudes that we want to cultivate as a church as we plant. Um, so I've, I've decided on 10. So here are the 10 <laughs> up front. And then we'll look at them one by one as we look at unity today. Um, unity in, in, in life of the church and also the purpose of the church is an essential spiritual attitude, wouldn't you say? Right? The church needs to be united. Yeah? I would even go as far to say that it is God's will for, God, for the church, both in life and in purpose, to be united. It's God's will for the church to be united. Like, it really is. But what is unity? Like, how do we achieve it? Does the church unity, does church unity mean the same as world, the world's unity? Or does it mean like we all have to speak the same way and dress the same way and act the same way? And is that, is that what it means? Because unity, in the world sense, that's what, it, that's what it looks like. Can I pause here and ask you a question? And this is an interactive session, or semi-interactive session, <laughs> should I call it, right? How many people have experienced 
disunity in the church that eventually led to like church split. Show of hands. I'm not talking about like somebody not liking the music or not liking the ch the way the children's ministry is ran and then kind of just found some something else. I mean, I'm talking about like deep disunity. I think we know more about that than we know about what biblical unity in the church looks like. I brought this. I'm going to read you uh, an excerpt. From um, from my newly found new uh, favorite book, one of my favorite, the Screw Tape Letters, by C.S. Lewis. So, just to give you context, Screw Tape is like one of like the higher ranking devils, and and he's writing to his nephew, Wormwood. Who was uh, assigned to a patient, a human being, to tempt him. So in this chapter, in this letter, he's writing to him about, hey, um, thank you for writing to me. And we don't see what Wormwood writes. We only see kind of an implication of that. We only see what Screwtape writes. And he says, oh, thank you for letting me know that your, your patient, a person who is now a Christian, is following up and he's still attending the same church. And then he asked him, may I ask what you're about? Why, why is he still attending the same church? Because if he keeps attending the same church, that means he's going to be united. So he writes this, surely you know that if a man cannot be cured of church going, the next best thing to, is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. <laughs> That's, if, he, if, he just, if he can't stop him from going to church, just make him a connoisseur of, or a taster of churches until he finds one. The reason for that, he says, it's obvious. If the church becomes a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in a kind of unity, what he calls the enemy. This is God. He's referring to the enemy because he's writing from the other side, right? So it becomes a place if a, uh, a unity of place and a nod of likings that brings people from different classes and psychology together in a kind of unity the enemy desires. So instead of seeing that unity in the church, what the enemy wants to do is disunite us by making us go all over the place and make us church connoisseurs of sorts. And then he talks about how the congregational principle if could be used by making them some kind of club, some kind of social club, then we've achieved it. Some type of um, faction. If, it, if we can achieve that, then we've achieved the goal is what he's saying. So the, he's against unity of the church. So he will make us be um, church attenders, not for the real reason. Because Satan is no more happier to see God's children devour one another because they lack unity. And in another chapter, he talks about how like, they do that for entertainment. <laughs> it's so fascinating to see here. Like, I feel like I... Like, yeah, they... Here's a here's an entertaining thing to do, and then it's like some, that's the the most devious thing that he presents, but it's entertaining for him. That's because misery ultimately loves company, and that's where the enemy is. So, in light of that, what does actually what does Scripture teach us about sp the spiritual attitude of unity? And I want us to consider two passages in Scripture. One comes from John chapter seventeen, verses twenty and twenty one. And uh, 
high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, the master who has his plan for his church, what we want to pursue, John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Where Jesus says, I, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I just give that for context. But the real meat and potatoes of unity is here. That they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The reason why I read verse 20 is to really set the scene of this prayer. Jesus is praying for his disciples, not just the 12 or the 40 or the 400, however many disciples there were around him, that were really following him truly in his immediate context. But he specifically says this, not only these, but those. You and I are the those, by the way, because those are qualified by what? Who will believe in me through their word? We came to faith because we believed in the apostles' writings and their teachings and their doctrine. They gave us an account of the gospel, and we believed. So everyone in church history is included in this. And it's been passed on from generation to generation to generation to, in different languages, different cultures, different contexts. And now we're here. Now the Lord is praying for us. Not only God, that the Lord pray, answers our prayer, this is a fascinating thing that I was thinking about when I saw this. Like, the Lord is actually praying for you. He prayed for you. He advocates for you. That image of Him, like, He, he, he showed us on earth what He would do in heaven for us. That's what He's doing even now. So as we are preparing to plant this church, He's, he's advocating on our behalf, saying, Father, there, there, there's a group of believers in me that have heard the, the words of my disciples to which I gave and entrusted my, my words to. And now, 2,000 years later, there's a group of young people that are, that are gathered in my name and they're getting ready to plant. Can you make them united? Can you make them one? You think the father would answer the son's prayer? I would say yes. <laughs> I would say absolutely yes, even. So what kind of unity does he pray for? The unity that he prays for is rooted in an eternal and unchangeable truth of the oneness and the unity that there is between the father and the son. The unity that he's praying for is actually not rooted in any kind of worldly or culture-driven or historical or scientific unity. He's actually talking about a spiritual reality, an eternal reality that existed even before the universe was created. That is, that the Father was in the Son and the Son was in the Father and there is no separation between them two except for their personality, right? They, they, their oneness, their unity is is such that we can't even really fathom and, and get to it. So it's based and rooted in that. Because from eternity, the Father loved the Son, and the Son enjoyed equal glory with the Father. The two were and, and really are and forever will be essentially one. So oneness among believers, this unity that we are, we are talking about in, in, in the church, this unity that's going to be among disciples flows from each disciple's oneness with God. Because that's what he says. 
the prayers that they may be all one, that they also may be in us. Just as if the Father is in the, in the Son and the Son is in the Father, that each of them would be in us. And in doing so, then they would all be one together. This is what Jesus is praying for us. Questions here? I want to pause here. Thoughts? Yes. Are you saying that there would be one Trinity, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It just, just this context doesn't tell us anything about it. So, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was actually going to get to that. Yes. When, when Christ talks about oneness in the church, we see like division in the modern church among all the denominations. Yeah. Does that mean that like God was never really there if they lose division by like bickering about little small things? Yes and no. That would be subjective. From and and like I would have to know more about it, um, like what causes what causes the division? Is it actually bickering, or is it like a primary thing, or is it a secondary thing, or is it a multiplication thing? Right. So, um, are we looking at the same thing ultimately? Because even though there are m- multiple denominations within the evangelical circle, we do see some level of unity, don't we? Like, I've seen people united, uh, like, I've seen Baptists worship with Presbyterians. Presbyterians with a United, united Methodist. You know, like, we can still have that kind of unity just because there's a denomination that doesn't necessarily mean that there's division, is what I'm saying. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, the, the kind of division that comes from either not believing or the kind of division that would come from like bickering and, and biting each other up, um, maybe even induced by the enemy, right? That, that, that part is what Jesus is speaking against. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what we need to avoid. Uh, not necessarily like the larger denomination divisions. Um, more in the in the context of our our unity as believers. Yes. Like given what you said, do you think that Jesus' prayer was really fulfilled? Because the the church, Big C Church, you know, fundamentally, as far as salvation is concerned, yep. believing in Christ and then you know, confessing your faith. Yes. Gives you salvation. Right? And Big C Church yeah. is actually united on that. Oh yeah. So with that, would you say? I would say, yes, yeah. I mean, because there's nothing that the enemy can do and there's nothing that our weakness can, can, can fumble. Because, I mean, the son's prayer is always going to be answered by the father. Um, and th- this is the promise that, that he's given us. And we're living truths, uh, living proofs of that, honestly. Um, just getting to that point is, it's not to say, when, when we talk about oneness, right? When we talk about unity, it's not to say that there won't be any distinctions between individuals, right? And you even see that in the Godhead, so to speak, right? The Father is distinct from the Son. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is distinct from the Father and His person. And the Spirit is also distinct from both the Father and the Son. So there's distinction in the person, or if you will, in, in their personality, but they're not three gods. We, are, we don't worship three gods. We only worship one God. There's this oneness about them. And that's, that's the oneness that Jesus roots Christian unity or, uh, or, or, or church unity about. It's that same thing, that eternal truth, which we can never fathom, we can never really, truly, fully, 100% understand. Because then that would make us God. <laughs> if we knew the eternal workings of God himself, there's this mystical way of it, but it's, it's revealed. We can, 
we can reasonably come to a conclusion. There are not three gods, so it's revealed in three persons. There's a distinction, but there's a oneness. That's the kind of, so a unity that embraces distinction between persons. Like we have individual personalities. When you look at me, you see Manny. I see Ruth. I see Vinian. I see pa Pastor T over there. We are all. Hey, Pastor T. <laughs> We're in distinct individuals. But we're united. There's, there's a oneness about us collectively. So it doesn't discount our individual personalities. And that, I think that's where the confusion comes, right? Like you have to speak the way I speak. You have to believe with the same level of conviction about the same kind of things. And if you don't, then you must not be a, a true believer. That's where the divisions usually lie. Not recognizing Romans 15. Right? There's, there is, within the body, there's a weaker brother, and there's a stronger brother. And the stronger brother is supposed to bear with the weaker brother and not be a stumbling block. Right? There's, there's, there's even that aspect to, to, by which to, we need to think through. I think you had a question, sorry. Does that mean that the, the church is kind of reflective of the Trinity in the sense that it's like multiple different things all coming together for one cause? In a sense. Yeah. yeah, in a sense. I wouldn't say like that's the whole thing. Yeah. But yeah, in a sense. Like as, as you think about it, as, as the comparison Jesus makes here is as I am in you and you are in me and we are one, let them also be in us and then we all be one. So, uh, or, or let them all be united or, or, or be one. Right? That's, that's the prayer. So, in a sense, yes. But even though there's individual distinctions in personality or in persons, there's really no distinction. That's what unity means and what we believe. Like, there's no distinction in faith. There's no distinction in our desire. There's no distinction in our will or our purpose or our motivation. Like we can come and say one thing motivates us. That is to see God glorified. We have one will. That's to glorify God. We have one faith and we'll take a look at it here in a second as we look at the second um, scripture that that would really emphasize this for us as Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 4. But it's, there's no distinction in faith. There's no distinction in desire. So as a whole, when people see us and they say, oh yeah, yeah, those are, those are the people that follow Christ. They believe in the same thing. They desire to see people saved. All of them. That's why they go out as as a finance guy or as a student or as a teacher or, or as a mechanic or as a pastor or as a new graduate or as whoever, their desires are kind of the same. You can kind of tell that they desire to see people to come to the knowledge of the salvation and be saved. We're united in that. We have that one purpose is to, to make Christ known. There's no distinction in that. Now, how you go doing about it? Some people do it in a sauna, at the gym. Some people do it while they're Ubering. Same thing, just different. I'm not, I'm not calling any names. You know, some people do it at the cooler, in the break room or something. Some people do it as they're shopping. Whatever. How you, but as a whole, that's what we see. And Paul was really, he had a heart for church unity. 
He emphasizes this to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And it's, it's on your handout, but I will read it to you. I don't know if it's up there. Yeah, it's up there. You can look at it up there too. Join us over here. We won't bite. Come on. We're talking about church unity. Unite with us physically too. Look at what, and, and you guys, how many people know the condition of the, the Corinthian church? Or should I, should I go into it a little bit to kind of give a context? Because I don't want to assume, right? So the church in Corinth was really smart, like intellectually even. So Paul goes into the city called Corinth, and he plants a church, and he establishes this church, and he leaves. Not out of his own volition, but that's another story for another day. And then he leaves, and these guys, and then other teachers come in, other pastors come into that church. Like Peter, who they call Cephas. Apollos, who was actually a companion of Paul. So they come in and they start teaching, and they, you know, they like one style over the other. Maybe one of them dressed in a suit. So he was like, whatever, the other one dressed in, in jeans. So he, he was more relatable to the, to the context. Maybe one of them really spoke intelligently and people liked that intelligent speech. Whatever, they, they just liked them. So they started bickering among themselves. Now don't listen to Paul, listen to Peter, listen to, listen to um, uh, Apollos. And then people started wearing different jerseys within the church. I'm like, I'm on Paul's team. I'm on Peter's team. I'm, I'm only going to show up to church when Paul is preaching. I'm only going to show up to church if Peter, oh, who's preaching this weekend? Oh, Apollos. Man, leave that man be, man. I'm going somewhere else. And then that started creating this culture and that tension. And they're like, they started dividing. And Paul sees this church that he planted Still a young church, relatively speaking, only a few years old by this time. He writes them and he makes an appeal to them. And this is where we pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not I appeal to you by my power or anything. It's the highest appeal anybody can make. That all of you agree. And that there be no division among you. He had a heart for that but that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Like, that's his appeal. Be united. And then he goes on, and you can go home and, and read the rest of it. He says, wait, wait, did Paul get crucified for you? Or did Apollos deceive us? Don't we all serve the same? Are we united in Christ? That's why I say I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not me that died for you. And he makes that case because he emphasizes church unity as he writes to all these local churches again in philippians chapter 1 verse 27 he tells them only let your manner be of life be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come and see you or i'm absent i may hear of you that you were standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for faith of the gospel again you see the language of unity being emphasized there whether I'm here, whether I'm not, strive together, side by side, with one mind, standing firm in one spirit. But I think there's even a more clearer exposition of church unity in Ephesians chapter 4. A few verses 3 to 6. For context's sake, I'm going to read it for, from uh, verse 1. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Sounds like he's saying be obedient, doesn't it? That's the first spiritual attitude we looked at. It sounds like he's saying you've been called for freedom, so be obedient to walk in a manner that God calls you to. So your life should reflect what you believe, should live an obedient lifestyle. Number two, with all humility, stop there. That's the second 
spiritual attitude that we want to cultivate as a church plant, isn't it? Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love is the third one. Now we get to our text. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain. I think the NASB has it as being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So that word for eagerness shows diligence. We'll get into it. Eager to maintain the Spirit. Uh, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, there in all. Here's the language of oneness. It's almost an exposition of, an explanation of the Lord's Prayer for His disciples to be one. For Paul, same as Jesus, the unity of the church is built on oneness. That is both mystically and mysteriously and graciously given to them by the church, by the Spirit, I mean. The unity of the church is the work of the Spirit, which we can't fully fathom, like the, the oneness between the Father and the, and the Son that Jesus prayed about in back in John chapter 17. It's also built on the spiritual reality that is already given to the church. There's only one body, and that body is... Jesus doesn't have multiple bodies in the, in, in the universal sense, right? Jesus has one body. There's one universal church. Now, there's local bodies of, of Christ because we can't all be, we get that. But that oneness has been presented to us already. We've seen it, we read about it, we, it's, it's there. There's only one spirit in us. Like if we're true believers, if we have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't have the Holy Spirit living in me, and then Adele has some other spirit living in him. That's not, that's not true. We have the same spirit. The same spirit that is in me and the work in me is a work in him, same as I'm in. So it's, it's an already existing, it's an already given thing by the Spirit. We're called to the same hope, to one hope, Paul says, which is eternal life. Like God doesn't give Dole a hope for eternal life and Colin some other hope, like temporal life. <laughs> like, you know, it's the same hope. We have the same hope. It's one hope. And it's already been given to us. We're under submission to one Lord. Jesus is not just the Lord of me and not the Lord of Yordi. No, we both look at Jesus and say, you are Lord. That's done. We trust only in one thing. We have one faith. We have one object of faith. Some of us don't believe in God or, or some of us don't just believe in, like our object of faith is God and the other one is is like money or whatever. That's not that. It's not how it is. It's already there. We all partake in one baptism. Some of us didn't just unite in Christ's death and resurrection, while other others just took some sanctified bath, a baptism. No, if you are baptized, we all have been united in that. That's that's what you took part of. And we are ultimately reconciled to the same God who adopts us as children. Like we all have the same last name, spiritually speaking. 
we're all God's children in a special way. Not like all creation flows out of God and therefore God is the father of all creation as a source. But no, like those who believe in Christ have a special familial relationship with God. Like you come to my household. Who was it that was asking me? I think it was Amin yesterday. She was asking me, I'm going to put you on blast for a second. Oh, I didn't know that your, your, your wife was Ethiopian. I was just like, no, she's not. But she has an Ethiopian last name. I said, that's my last name. Everybody in my household is called by my last name. So when you look at us, you call us the Keller family. That's what it is. That's the kind, we all have the same father and the same God that we're reconciled to. So these are spiritual realities that are already existent. So the point is this. We don't have to reinvent the wheel of unity. It's not something that we create as we are getting ready to launch or getting prepared to plant the church. Okay, how do we unite? Okay, let's, let's brainstorm real quick. Uh, this is, these are the things. Okay, what do you guys think? All right, let's take a vote on it. We don't unite around those things. Our unity comes from what the Bible says. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all. That's what we unite around. That's the campfire, if you will, that we all gather around. We don't reinvent the will. We don't create the unity by our own effort, based on our likings or by our taste and style or personal preferences. That's where the uni the, this unity comes, by the way. Because when people look at their personal preferences and their taste and style, and they elevate it above what, what God says to unite around, that's where you start seeing, no, I like this kind of leadership style. No, I like this other kind of leadership style. No, I like this kind of music. I like contemporary music, and all y'all sing is hymns. So I'm, I'm out of here. And you know what? You know, all this hymns, you know, this, you know, all you sing is contemporary stuff, and this is heretical, you know, like you got people from, from here. And then... That's your personal preference. You preach for too long. You preach for too short. Those are personal preferences. That's not where we anchor our unity in. We anchor our unity in what God reveals in His Word. What Paul is calling us to do here is to recognize the spiritual reality. The unity is already, like we're already united. Like you and I would Forever be together, whether we like it or not. Whether you like suits or jeans, whether you like hymns or uh, contemporary music, whether you like 30-minute sermons or an hour and a half sermons, which I'm on track to meet today. So bear with me. <laughs> we are already united in Christ. What we're called to do, though, notice back in verse 3, is be eager to maintain it. Be diligent to preserve it. So diligence and eagerness is what's lacking. That's usually why most churches split. Most churches don't have this idea of unity. We want to start off right. We want to lay this foundation and have this spiritual attitude baked into our DNA as a church plant before we even go anywhere. Because it's easy, if you, are asked, if you ask me, it's easy to revert back to our default setting of individualism that the world preaches, right? It's easy. It's hard work. And really, to keep unity, that's hard work. You need to be diligent. You need to be eager to be united with somebody. 
to, to keep the oneness. Those of you that are married can, can attest to this. It's amazing. Sometimes amazingly painful, but still amazing nonetheless. But it's hard work. But because we live in a culture that is promoting individual, individualistic ideologies, then it's, it's easy to kind of revert back to that default state. It's easy to prefer the comfort of convenience that our flesh enjoys. So instead of working hard, instead of being eager and diligent to maintain and, and preserve what God has already entrusted us with, which is unity, kind of just be like, I don't feel like it, man. It's easy to be conquered by the divide and conquer scheme of the enemy. That's his plan. I mean, from Genesis 3, that, wasn't, that was his plan. Let me find Eve by herself real quick. Let me divide and then conquer. And that's just been the same scheme. It just played out in different ways. So our part as a church is to keep this oneness that Jesus prayed for on our behalf. And, and, to, and to have and to, perse to preserve this unity that is already ours in spirit. And none of these spiritual attitudes, by the way, if you've noticed the trend, none of these spiritual attitudes exist but in a vacuum. They kind of correlate. And this is where humility and love would supply the fuel by which we are united. We humble ourselves. We come. Remember, we, we talked about humility in the beginning, right? Humility is recognizing what God has given you, your value that God has given you, knowing that your value is in Christ, and then using it for the sake of others, not your own self um, selfish ambition. And that's going to fuel our unity. Love, meeting each other's needs out of this abundance out of this affection that we feel for one another is going to fuel our unity. If we are humble and loving, unity can be preserved, fueled by those two things. They will fuel our eagerness and our diligence. Hence, we have the last thing and then I'll open it up for questions or comments or conundrums that reflect our commitment. We are committed to work diligently as a church plant, the Remnant Church, Remnant Bible Church, is committed to work diligently and eagerly to maintain and preserve our unity and our oneness in Christ. That is already afforded to us by God through His Spirit. That's going to be our spiritual attitude. That's going to be baked in it. And how we go from here. Let me open it up. I've gone nine minutes over my time.